Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is live coverage from ABC News. Here is ABC News correspondent Brad Milken. It was one of the most important decisions of President Trump's young administration. Indeed, one of the top reasons many people voted him into office to select a Supreme Court justice. Now Judge Neil Gorsuch of Colorado nominated to be that next justice about to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee as his confirmation hearings began. An anticipated moment here. ABC's Lana Zak is at the Capitol. Lana, what can we expect to hear from Judge Gorsuch right now, and what kind of battle can we expect over this confirmation? Well, we're going to see if he actually tries to make any overtures over to the Democratic side. He has been praised uh, by moderates um, from both parties, and in many ways his resume reflects that he is um, in every way a uh, a successor to um, to Antonin Scalia's seat in uh, in philosophy and his um, constitutional scholarship and and even in the way that he approaches the role of a Supreme Court justice. So on the merits of his case, he absolutely has every uh, right to be confirmed by the Senate or, or under consideration. But that said, let's think about the politics of this. We are entering into a very divided Congress in which uh, the Democrats are still feeling very wounded about um, President Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland, never even making it to this step, that confirmation hearing. He never got the chance to make those opening remor- remarks, which we're going to hear um, from Neil Gorsuch in just a couple of moments. But that is is politics. And Democrats made a very big point about how bad that was. We just heard a moment ago from Senator um, Bennett of Colorado saying it was an embarrassment to this body that they never considered uh, Judge Merrick Garland. And as tempting as it may be for Democrats, that he reminds them that two wrongs don't make a right. This is a Democrat testifying in favor of President Trump's nominee. Let's Lana Zak at the Capitol right now. Right now, uh, the former uh, uh, attorney, solicitor general, rather, for Colorado, Neil Katyal, is giving his introduction of Judge Gorsuch. We also just heard, as Lana said, from Michael Bennett and uh, from Cory Gardner, the two Colorado senators, one Republican, one Democrat. And Lana, perhaps that being one of those sort of overtures that the Trump administration trying to make, trying to create this bipartisan feel. But we do keep hearing those words, Lana, the nuclear option. Uh, If it became necessary, if they needed to, could Republicans actually force this confirmation right through? They could potentially. Now, here's here's the skinny on that. Uh, They are hoping to get 60 votes to confirm him. That would be just the normal the normal state of business. The only option that's available to the Democrats to try and fight back on this would be to launch a filibuster. Any one Democrat can do that. They can try and and prolong this hearing as much as possible, try and and not bring Judge Gorsuch up for an actual vote as just a political ploy to to get their their ounce of flesh, uh, if you will. If they wanted to do that, 
the uh, the Senate has indicated, the Senate leadership has indicated that they are willing to do this so-called nuclear option, which would be to stop the filibuster, to prevent them from doing it, and to force a vote uh, that would allow for Gorsuch to be confirmed, um, by, essentially bypassing all of the avenues that Democrats have available to them. It would be messy. It would set precedent uh, that that potentially could destroy any feelings of bipartisanship that exist in this Congress as as tenuous as they may be right now. So that's really something that uh, that folks don't want to see happen in the past when it's been threatened. There have been bipartisan uh, members who have tried to bring Republicans and Democrats together to try and prevent that from happening. We're going to have to see if that happens right now. But with Democrats not having a lot of options open to them and them still not having a cohesive idea of how they want to approach this nomination, uh, anything could really happen, Brad. Uh, Judge Gorsuch's friend and colleague Neil Katyal right now continuing to give his opening remarks, the last of several sort of introductory opening remarks. Uh, this uh, Senate panel has been here for about four hours as they've, uh, that's how long it's taken just to get through opening remarks. Tomorrow will actually be the question and answer session. But behind Mr. Kotyal right now, Judge Gorsuch appearing relaxed. He's been smiling. And now uh, he's being called up to that table to appear before that dais. You want to change the everything that you have to do and they will be changing out the name tag they'll be changing out some bottled water as judge gorsuch sits back there looking relatively relaxed lana quickly What's the preparation been like over the last couple of weeks? He's been over at the old executive office building right next door to the White House. They've been holding some sort of mock hearings for him, people throwing questions at him, him practicing. Uh, and, and you mentioned how many hours they're doing, six hours today. A total of 24 hours is about the average usually for how long these confirmation hearings last. And right now, Judge Gorsuch with his hand raised, about to be sworn in for this testimony. Thank you. Please be seated, and you may uh, tell us what you want us to hear at this point. Mr. Chairman, Senator Feinstein, members of the committee, I am honored and I am humbled to be here. Since coming to Washington, I've met with over 70 senators. You've offered me a warm welcome and wise advice. Thank you. I also want to thank the President and the Vice President. They and their teams have been so gracious to me, and I thank them for this honor. I want to thank Senators Bennett and Gardner and General Kotschel for their kind introductions, reminding us that long before we're Democrats or Republicans, we're Americans. Sitting here, I'm acutely aware of my own imperfections. But I pledge to each of you and to the American people that if I am confirmed, I will do all my powers permit to be a faithful servant of the Constitution and laws of this great nation. Mr. Chairman, I could not even attempt to do this without Louise, my wife of more than 20 years. The sacrifices she has made and her open and giving heart, they leave me in awe. I love you so much. We started off in a place very different than this one. Tiny apartment, little to show for it. When Louise's mother first came to visit, 
She was concerned by the conditions, understandably. As I headed out the door to work, I'll never forget her whispering to her daughter in a voice I think intended to be just loud enough for me to hear, are you sure he's really a lawyer? <laughs> to my teenage daughters watching out west, bathing chickens for the county fair, devising ways to keep our determined pet goat out of the garden, building a semi-functional plyboard hovercraft for science fair, driving eight hours through a Wyoming snowstorm with high school debaters in the back arguing the whole way. These are just a few of my very favorite memories. I love you girls impossibly. To my extended family, here across Colorado, when we gather, it's dozens of us. We hold different political and religious views, but we are united in our love. And between the family pranks and the pack of children running rampant, whoever's hosting is usually left with at least one drywall repair. <laughs> to my parents and grandparents, they're no longer with us, but there's no question on whose shoulders I stand. My mom was one of the first women graduates of the University of Colorado Law School. As the first female assistant district attorney in Denver, she helped a program to pursue deadbeat dads. And her idea of daycare sometimes meant I got to spend the day wandering the halls or tagging along behind the police officers. She taught me that headlines are fleeting. Courage lasts. My dad taught me that success in life has very little to do with success. Kindness, he showed me, is the great virtue. He showed me, too, that there are few places closer to God than walking in the wilderness or wading a trout stream. Even if it is an awfully long drive home with a family dog after he encounters a skunk. <laughs> to my grandparents, as a boy, I could ride my bike to their homes. They were a huge influence. My mom's father, poor and Irish, worked to help support his family as a boy after losing his own dad. But the nuns made sure he got an education and he became a doctor. Even after he passed away, I heard stories for years from grateful patients who recalled him kneeling by their bedsides so they might pray together. His wife, my grandmother, grew up on a Nebraska farm where an icebox wasn't something you plugged into the wall, but something you lowered into the ground. With seven children, she never stopped moving and she never stopped loving. My dad's father made his way through college working on Denver's trolley cars. He practiced law through the Great Depression. And he taught me that lawyers exist to help people with their problems, not the other way around. His wife came from a family of pioneers. She loved to fish. And she's the one who taught me how to tie a fly. I want to thank my friends, so many of whom are here, liberals and conservatives and independents from every kind of background and belief. Many hundreds have written this committee on my behalf. And I'm truly touched by their support. They have been there for me always. Not least when we recently lost my Uncle Jack, a hero of mine, and a lifelong Episcopal priest. He gave the benediction when I took an oath as a judge 11 years ago. I confess I was hoping he might offer a similar prayer soon. As it is, I know he is smiling.
I want to thank my fellow judges across the country. Judging is sometimes a lonely and hard job. But I have seen how these men and women work, how hard they work, with courage and collegiality, independence and integrity. It's their work that helps make real the Constitution and laws of the United States for all of us. I want to thank my legal heroes, Byron White, my mentor, a product of the West. He modeled for me judicial courage. He followed the law wherever it took him, without fear or favor to anyone. War hero, Rhodes Scholar, and yes, the highest paid NFL football player of his day. In Colorado today, there's God, there's John Elway, and there's Peyton Manning. In my childhood, it was God and Byron White. I also had the great fortune to clerk for Justice Kennedy. He showed me that judges can disagree without being disagreeable, that everyone who comes to court deserves respect, that a case isn't just a number or a name, but a life's story and a human being with equal dignity to my own. Justice Scalia was a mentor, too. He reminded us that words matter, that the judge's job is to follow the words that are in the law, not replace them with those that aren't. His colleagues cherished his great humor, too. Now, we didn't agree on everything. The justice fished with the enthusiasm of a New Yorker. He thought the harder you slapped the line on the water, somehow more the fish would love it. <laughs> Finally, there's Justice Jackson. He wrote so clearly that everyone could understand his decisions. He never hid behind legal jargon. And while he was a famously fierce advocate for his client when he was a lawyer, he reminded us that when you become a judge, you fiercely defend only one client, the law. By their example, these judges taught me about the rule of law and the importance of an independent judiciary, how hard our forebearers worked to win these things, how easy they are to lose, how each generation must either take its turn carrying the baton or watch it fall. Mr. Chairman, these days we sometimes hear judges cynically described as politicians in robes, seeking to enforce their own politics rather than striving to apply the law impartially. But if I thought that were true, I'd hang up the robe. The truth is, I just don't think that's what a life in the law is about. As a lawyer for many years working in the trial court trenches, I saw judges and juries, while human and perfect, striving hard every day to fairly decide the cases I put to them. As a judge now for more than a decade, I've watched my colleagues spend long days worrying over cases. Sometimes the answers we reach aren't the ones we personally prefer. Sometimes the answers follow us home at night and keep us up. But the answers we reach are always the ones we believe the law requires. And for all its imperfections, I believe that the rule of law in this nation truly is a wonder, and that it's no wonder that it's the envy of the world. Of course, once in a while we judges do disagree. But our disagreements are not about politics, but about the law's demands. Let me offer an example. The first case I wrote as a judge to reach the Supreme Court divided five to four. The court affirmed my judgment with the support of Justices Thomas and Sotomayor, with Justices Stevens and Scalia in dissent. 
Now, that's a lineup some might think unusual. But actually, it's exactly the sort of thing that happens quietly, day in and day out, in the United States Supreme Court and in the courts across this country. I wonder if people realize that Justices Thomas and Sotomayor agree about 60% of the time, or that Justices Scalia and Breyer agreed even more often than that, all in the very toughest cases in our entire legal system. And here's another example about my record. Over the last decade, I've participated in over 2,700 appeals. Often these cases are hard, too. Only about 5% of all federal lawsuits make their way to decision in a court of appeals. I've served with judges appointed by President Obama all the way back to President Johnson. And in the Tenth Circuit, we hear cases from six different states covering two time zones and 20% of the continental United States. But in the West, we listen to one another respectfully. We tolerate, we cherish different points of view, and we seek consensus whenever we can. My law clerks tell me that 97% of those 2,700 cases I've decided were decided unanimously, and that I've been in the majority 99% of the time. That's my record, and that's how we do things in the West. Of course, I make my share of mistakes, too. As my daughters never tire of reminding me, putting on a robe does not make me any smarter. And I'll never forget my first day on the job. Carrying a pile of briefs up the steps to the bench, I tripped on the hem of my robe. And just about everything went flying. But troublesome as the robe can be, the robe does mean something to me, and not just that I can hide the coffee stains on my shirt. Putting on a robe reminds us judges that it's time to lose our egos and open our minds. It serves, too, as a reminder of the modest station we judges are meant to occupy in a democracy. In other countries, judges wear scarlet, silk, ermine. Here, judges, we judges, we buy our own plain black robes. And as Senator Sass knows, I can attest the standard choir outfit at the local uniform supply store is a pretty good deal. Ours is a judiciary of honest black polyester. When I put on the robe, I'm also reminded that under our Constitution, it's for this body, the people's representatives, to make new laws, for the executive to ensure those laws are faithfully executed, and for neutral and independent judges to apply the law in the people's disputes. If judges were just secret legislators, declaring not what the law is, but what they would like it to be, the very idea of a government by the people and for the people would be at risk. And those who came before the court would live in fear, never sure exactly what the law requires of them, except for the judge's will. As Alexander Hamilton said, liberty can have nothing, from, nothing to fear from judges who apply the law, but liberty has everything to fear if judges try to legislate, too. In my decade on the bench, I've tried to treat all who come before me fairly and with respect and afford equal right to poor and to rich. I've decided cases for Native Americans seeking to protect tribal lands, for class actions like one that ensured compensation for victims of a large nuclear waste pollution problem produced by corporations in Colorado, 
I've ruled for disabled students, for prisoners, for the accused, for workers alleging civil rights violations, and for undocumented immigrants. Sometimes, too, I've ruled against such persons. My decisions have never reflected a judgment about the people before me, only a judgment about the law and the facts at issue in each particular case. A good judge can promise no more than that, and a good judge should guarantee no less. For a judge who likes every outcome he reaches is probably a pretty bad judge, stretching for policy results he prefers rather than those the law compels. Mr. Chairman, as a student many years ago, I found myself walking through the old Granary burial ground in Boston. It's where Paul Revere, John Hancock, and many of our founders are buried. And there I came across the tombstone of a lawyer and judge who today is largely forgotten, as we're all destined to be soon enough. His name was Increase Sumner, and written onto his tombstone over 200 years ago was this description of the man. As a lawyer, he was faithful and able. As a judge, patient, impartial, and decisive. In private life, he was affectionate and mild. In public life, he was dignified and firm. Party feuds were allayed by the correctness of his conduct. Calumny was silenced by the weight of his virtues, and rancor softened by the amenity of his manners. Mr. Chairman, those words stick with me. I keep them on my desk. They serve for me as a daily reminder of the law's integrity, that a useful life can be led in its service, with the hard work it takes, and an encouragement to good habits when I fail and when I falter. At the end of it all, I could ask for nothing more than to be described as he was. And if confirmed, I pledge to you that I will do everything in my power to be that man. Thank you, Judge. Uh, I have uh, just a few words to say uh, to read, but before I do that, uh, we will convene tomorrow at 930 Judge uh, Neil Gorsuch hoping to become the next Supreme Court Justice of the United States. He finished his statement with a smile, presenting himself as pretty standard conservative and a friendly one at that. He shared a hug with his wife. He brushed back tears talking about his late uncle, whom he considers a hero. He noted an old family saying that lawyers exist to help people with their problems, not the other way around. And without mentioning President Trump by name, he pushed back at the notion, at the notion rather, that judges have any place in politics. He's stayed away from the thorny issues of abortion, religious freedom, and corporate rights, and instead closed with a soaring quote about judicial dignity. Thank you for joining us. He will be back tomorrow, as will we, with more of his question and answer testimony for these confirmation hearings. In the meantime, I'm Brad Milkey. This has been live coverage from ABC News. ABC News, honored. Winner for the third straight year with the Edward R. Murrow Award for overall excellence in television and radio. ABC News, America's number one news source. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 